You're listening to How Do I Sponsor a Refugee, a podcast brought to you by MCC Saskatchewan. Welcome to episode five of How Do I Sponsor a Refugee? My name's Mark. I am the Migration and Resettlement Coordinator with Mennonite Central Committee Saskatchewan, which means I help groups to resettle refugees in Canada. And I am in the process of learning Welsh. And one reason why I'm doing that is that I own one thousandth of a Welsh pub where people are kind of expected to at least speak a little bit of Welsh. Cool. <laughs> I'm currently learning Spanish, but for no other reason other than I find it really easy and there's enough momentum to keep me interested. My name's Kate. Um, I am a simulated patient trainer at the University of Saskatchewan's Health Sciences Department, uh, which basically means I teach well people how to pretend to be sick. And the most frightening thing that I've done is hunt eels at midnight in New Zealand. Mm. Absolutely terrifying. We should probably say that as we're doing this podcast, we are in the middle of waiting for... Yes. <laughs> this is a very thematic episode. It yeah. is exactly what we're currently experiencing. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully by the time a lot of you hear this, everything will have been resolved. But yes. at the moment, Kate's um, group is, is waiting for some people to arrive. So, yeah, so one of the things that we do often worry about is, are we doing enough while we wait, and why does it take so long, and all those things. So just to kind of recap a bit of the things that we've talked about a bit in previous episodes, what what is happening behind the scenes? Why does it take so long, once all our forms have been sent in, for these folks to get approved to come over? Okay, so the first stage is usually quite quick getting approval in Ottawa Mm -hmm. for the application to be considered. Right. That means the application goes to the relevant visa office, and Canada has a number of visa offices throughout the world. There's not one in every country, Mm -hmm. but there's one covering every country, except for those countries with whom we don't have diplomatic relations, and those are bit problematic. So trying to get people here from Iran is really, really, really difficult, for example, mm. or from North Korea. Okay. But, you know, just about anywhere else, there's a visa office covering it. Mm-hmm. And those visa offices put a lot of effort into checking people out. They have to check that people are eligible. That means they are genuinely a refugee. You know, they have legitimate fear of persecution. Persecution by government or by assailants or by terrorist groups or whatever, Mm -hmm. or of war in their home country. So that's usually fairly easy to to demonstrate. Mm -hmm. But also that they do not have a durable solution in the country where they are. Right. And that takes a little bit more checking into. And there are different views on that sometimes Mm -hmm. in visa offices. So that's one thing that they have to check into. But then the other thing they have to check is admissibility. Right. And that means 
we don't want terrorists, we don't want large-scale criminals, we don't want people who are going to bring dread diseases into the country. Yeah, the big three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they do some so they, background So they do a whole load of background checks. Yeah. And then they are comparing three things, basically. They're comparing what the person has written on their Schedule 2 that they sent in with, as part of the application with what they say at interview when they come to interview eventually mm-hmm. with what their spooks have been finding out, sort of digging around, trying to find out about these people. Yeah. They'll, you know, they'll also do biometrics, whether that's fingerprints or mm-hmm. irises or whatever it is, whatever technology is available where they are, mm-hmm. in order to check that they are who they say they are. Wow, OK. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, you, you can understand that because, you know, there are some countries where there's, there's a very limited number of possible names Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so we have to use other metrics yeah, for identity. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So then that part of the process is all done by like professionals and the process is um, very behind the scenes. And so there's not much yeah. influence we could have to hurry these private investigators along no, in their process. No, there that isn't. That all has to there take that time. That has to take time. And... You know, they can expedite cases, but they only do it when they see there's an emergency. You know, if we see there's an emergency, that's not quite the same thing. Right. Uh, And is there really a way for us to make them see the emergency the way that we see it? Like, how much lines of communication are there between us and these offices? Not a lot. They deliberately discourage that. And you can understand that as well, because, you know, if people are co- constantly sending emails saying, so this person is, is in desperate condition, and, you know, everybody that we're dealing with pretty well mm. is in a desperate condition. Yes. Uh, you know, they're going to spend all their time reading these emails rather than getting on with processing the cases. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can understand their anxiety about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, we have cases where we can actually legitimately... Um, expedite it. So if somebody is at risk, yeah, you know, risk being status. attacked by people, yeah. or you know, at least people come to the door threatening them, mm-hmm. or if they have you know, a really serious illness and can't be dealt with in the country where they are, mm. for example, you know, those are things that will cause them to expedite. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've had a couple of cases like that, where we've actually succeeded. We've had others where I've tried, and Mm. the situation isn't quite bad enough. So that's basically why it takes so long, is that they have to do really thorough checks. And quite honestly, that's on top of a backlog of cases, Mm. which they were beginning to reduce until COVID came along. Mm-hmm. And then COVID came along, they, they became short-staffed, the communications became limited, mm-hmm. and so they developed another backlog. Many piles, piles of forms and, and, and people in dire situations yeah. represented yeah. in those piles. So then on our end, while you've sent an application for folks to come over, what are the bits of communication that you can expect throughout the process to let you know where the process is at? Not very much, to be Mm -hmm. quite honest. There is a government site called ECAS where you can look people up. You know, you enter their Mm -hmm. name and their 
date of birth and the country where they were born and the application number. And if it's working, right. <laughs> which it usually is, but not always, then you can see their notes on what communications there has been. Okay. Uh, which usually are pretty limited. So it usually just tells you what you know already that you know they started the application on a particular date. Mm. Sometimes it will say when they've been called to interview, sometimes it will say when they've been called to medical. When you see those, then it's usually, as I was saying last week, mm. a sign that things are moving, that you know we're close to the end. Mm-hmm. but not with every visa office necessarily. Right. So, yeah. What are the final signs? Like, do you, you must find out when they get on a plane. You must find sure. out the arrival. Yeah. Like, what are yeah. those, yeah. Um, the you know, get the car running kind of signs? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I need to give a, a pre-COVID answer and an right. under-COVID answer. Okay. Uh, hopefully a lot of people listening to this, COVID will not be a thing well it would be nice to think that but yeah given it will have the, changed, changed into a different thing by then given the lack of vaccinations in so many of the countries that we're dealing with mm-hmm. which is another issue that we are concerned about this could go on for some time mm-hmm. so pre-covid answer is that they will send what's called a pre-nat uh, NAT is notice of arrival transmission. Okay. So, yeah. So that basically says, yeah, we've approved these people. Hmm. And then a little more time later, there is a NAT hmm. uh, notice of arrival transmission, mm-hmm. which gives the date and time, you know, all the flight details, basically, yeah. for, for the family or for the individual, whoever it is we're dealing with. We don't really get a lot of warning before that. It, we should hear, and we usually do hear, if pe- when people are called to interview. Mm-hmm. We may hear when they're called to medical. And for that reason, it's, it's good to stay as much in touch with the refugees themselves as possible, because often they will be told when we aren't. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll be told when they aren't, which... Right. You know, Which we is have another to, reason we have to stay in contact. Yeah. 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 But, you know, I mean, if all the communications are going well at the visa office, everybody will be informed. Yes. Uh, but, you know, we have to watch out for those things because I mean, these people are, well, I'm, I'm trying to be generous to them. They are hard pressed. They've, they've got a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. That's the pre COVID situation. Under COVID, what's been happening instead of the pre NAT? is we've been getting a message saying, please tell us if you are ready to receive this person and return this form completed showing what arrangements you can make for quarantine. Oh, okay, right. So, uh, which is quite a simple form. It's, mm-hmm. it's fairly straightforward, but it does mean you have to put in an address where mm-hmm. they're going to come to, which you may not have organised. And so, you know, we've been advising people... If you don't have a place for them yet, and you know there are good reasons for not having a place for them yet because mm-hmm. you don't want to be paying extra rent for an empty flat, mm-hmm. then you know put a hotel address down and start energetically looking for somewhere, and then change the the quarantine plan 
Right. When so you, you can update that. You for can you update that. that yes. Great. Okay. Yeah. So that's instead of the pre-NAT, and you still get the NAT. Okay. What we've been getting lately, I mean, we're speaking in March 2022, is a lot of flight changes. You know, mm. you get a NAT, and then you get a revised NAT, and I mean, we've had one case where it's been revised four times, I think. Okay. And do you know why that happens? No, I don't. But I assume it has to do with availability of flights. Right, okay. And, you know, especially coming from some places which are still quite vulnerable to COVID, mm-hmm. flight schedules are being affected. When it's flights within Canada, I'm less sure of the reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, because they'll always come to Toronto first and then... Most, nearly all of them come to Toronto first. We, right. we get some from Vancouver if they're coming from the other part Asia. Of it, yeah. yeah. Okay. But even some of the ones from Asia will come right the way across to Toronto. Right. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's all, that's all arranged by people who are uh, able to make those decisions. And... Yeah. Well, it's a matter of where are the flights that can get here. Mm-hmm. And that's still a bit of an issue under COVID mm-hmm. because... You know, if you've got stopovers, where is it safe to stop? Right. Without having to go into two two weeks of quarantine. Yeah. And, you know, can you make a, a quick transfer so you don't have to stop if you go into one of those places? And do you have the paperwork to get off a plane there and get on another plane? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a complex business for them to, to deal with. That's actually done by um, IOM, the International Organization for Migration. Okay. Uh, from just about everywhere. There's a couple of places where people are expected to organise their own flights, which is, mm. doesn't seem entirely fair to me. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's the situation. Okay. Are there any things that can really, really slow down or stall the process that are in our control at all? Not really. Mm-hmm. Not really. Certainly... I have found that it's useful to work with people in the country that they're coming from mm-hmm. who have their interests at heart. And typically that's, that's the staff at the IOM office okay. who in some cases have been incredibly helpful hmm. working to persuade local bureaucrats who are just trying to play by the rules that actually the rules don't work for this person. Hmm. Right. <laughs> Yeah, sort yeah. it out. That said, you know, there can be another delay, which nobody can do anything much about, apart from bureaucrats in the country where they are. Right. Yeah. And we have no influence over them. Hmm. So you basically, on, on our end, you just wait to see that the application has been received or that the different approvals have happened, and... A big sign is finding out that they're getting interviewed and that they're getting their medical, because mm-hmm. that means things yeah. are moving along. Yeah. But then there can be quite a long wait between that interview and medical and you finding out when their flight is. Yes. It doesn't necessarily yeah. mean, okay, they'll be here in a yeah. month. Not necessarily. I mean, often it would, but mm-hmm. not necessarily. So... While you and your group wait, if you're the friends or loved ones of the person who's coming over, or if you're just a group of folks who have come together to help settle a family or an individual, what are the kind of main headings of the things we're going to talk about that you can do in the meantime? Well, 
What's your group been doing, Kate? Well, we've been uh, amassing more. We've been bringing more people into our group for one thing, and making sure that we have the like human energy, time, resources, as well as the financial resources to support the different needs of these folks once they get here. Um, we've been able to have a couple conversations over Zoom um, or WhatsApp with the folks that we're bringing over, um, partially just to meet them and say, hello, we're excited to meet you yeah. face to face, but also to say, okay, so you're a young family, your needs are going to be different than everyone mm-hmm. else's. What what would be, what would you like your home to look like? Are you, um, you know, is there anything else that you'd like us to set up before you get here? Mm-hmm. Um, anything that we can look into for you other than, you know, the basics of shelter. Yeah. And, yeah. and those conversations are really important, I think. Mm-hmm. That, you know, sometimes it's not easy. I mean, if they don't have good English and you don't have a good interpreter, then right. it's going to be problematic. Yeah, but we've been um, really lucky. You've been, yeah, you've yeah. done, yeah, you've, you've got a good bunch to, <laughs> yeah. to bring. Um, but, you know, even so, it's just to be able to tell people, yes, there are people here who are waiting for you and yeah. want to help you when you get here. And, I mean, that goes a long way. Yeah, really being able to see our faces and hear our voices, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, finding out through forms and emails that there's this, perhaps, well, not not perhaps frictional, what am I trying to say, this idea of a group of people. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. But once it's, I think, I can't imagine myself being in the situation that these refugees are being in, but it might be... The, the, the nature of the hope that you feel mm-hmm. for what things might change. Yeah. I yeah. think that the, the nature of that hope changes a little bit once you actually meet the people. Other things we've been doing, we had a lovely orientation session with you mm-hmm. where you talked us through some more of the practical points of things that need to happen and skills we need to have in order to facilitate the settlement of these folks here. We've talked more about which members of our group are going to be in charge of which types of tasks. Mm -hmm. You know, who has a car and is available during the day to drive people to do errands or go to doctor's appointments or go fill out forms? Who's really good at filling out forms online and getting through Mm -hmm. the paperwork and all that kind of stuff? Who wants to, you know, put together everything, all the bits and bobs that need to be in a house, like the strainer and the spoon and the, you know, desks for the bedroom and things like that? and kind of assigned ourselves loosely to those things so that we have a a picture of what we're we're in charge of. We've been making a long list of all those bits and bobs that'll need to go into a home, making lists of pantry items that I'm sure will be changed quite a bit Mm -hmm. the more we talk to these families about what kinds of pantry items and types of flour and vegetables they want to have around. Yeah, what do you eat? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Am I going to... I'm not going to put pancake mix in your cupboard if you don't like pancakes. So, uh, what are some other things? That's that's kind of where we're at right now. We have a meeting again this weekend, so I'm sure we'll update one another on mm-hmm. what our next. Yeah, I mean, the other big thing is start looking at accommodation, but yes. don't sign a contract until yeah. you know you're close. That is one of the more frustrating parts about planning is that it would feel so comforting 
to know that we just had a home that mm-hmm. was ready yeah. and that we just yeah. didn't have to pay rent until they got mm-hmm. here. <laughs> but that's, I think, pretty impossible yeah. to find. Yeah. And of course, for some people, you know, they're, they're bringing a family member and right, they so would they move into the their home. own house. So, yeah. yeah. And provided they can figure out the quarantine piece related yeah. to that, you know, that works quite well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that is, that's a major piece that has to, we have to have tentative ideas and best places to look and then sometimes on quite short notice, sign that contract, get that flat ready for mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier the orientation session that you did with us, but um, another portion of the orientation of a group is to kind of read through some materials on their own time. Can you talk a bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, there's a group called RSTP. Uh, that's the Refugee Sponsorship Training Programme. They have a website. You just, you know, if you just Google on RSTP, you'll get to it quite easily. Mm. And there's some materials there that uh, will help you with, you know, what to expect, what's, what's needed, the expectations of sponsors. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's useful materials. Mm-hmm. They are actually funded by government, and so they make sure that everything that they put out is, is consistent with what government expects of us. Mm. It's worth reading. They won't tell you absolutely everything, but then you don't really learn every, absolutely everything until you actually do it. So, yeah, so much yeah. of it is, is a learn by doing yeah. and experiencing. Yeah. Okay, so to sum up, we've talked about what the process looks like behind the scenes from the point where you've sent in applications to the point where they arrive. We've talked about why that can take long, a long time, and um, you know what signs to look for that the process is moving on and that the folks might be indeed close to getting on a plane. And then talked a little bit about some important tasks and uh, parts of the process that you can take care of uh, within your group while you're waiting for these signs to show up. Mm-hmm. And yeah. well, So the, the next in the series will be, in fact, a video talking in more detail about the financial side of things. Yeah, because that's, that has become quite rigid, hmm. the government rules over the last couple of years. Uh, so it's kind of important to stick to the rules, uh, which usually isn't a problem. What can be a problem is being able to demonstrate that you've stuck to the rules. So it's kind of important to keep receipts and to... Mm. Yeah, if you don't have the receipt, then at least a bank statement. And if you're giving gifts in kind, then photos and check on Kijiji what the value of the thing is going to be typically in mm-hmm. the place where you live. And, you know, those, those sorts of things. So right. that if somebody from IRCC sends us a friendly email saying, hey, please let us know what you've done for these people. And, you know, we need to know this, 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 this and this. And one of them is going to be the financial piece. Then we can answer them yeah. and not get into trouble. And if they never ask, then you've just got a file on your computer with all the information just in case. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So that's next time. That'll be next time. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Kate.
I should say that the way we're doing next time is a little different. There will be a very short podcast episode in which you will be directed, uh, both in the podcast episode and in the podcast notes, to a YouTube video, which I put together over the summer with my then colleague Jenna, who was here as a summer student with us at MCC, uh, with the videography by my colleague Jesse, also from MCC. And what that video will show you is how to use a sort of standard spreadsheet that I make available for anybody who works with us at MCC. I should note that this spreadsheet is not something compulsory. It's not something that IRCC requires. actually a spreadsheet that I put together myself. And so it's something that I offer to you as a way of keeping those financial records. You don't have to use it. You can find another way of doing it yourself. If it makes sense to you, you can use it. If it doesn't make sense to you, let's talk about something else when we come to that point in putting a sponsorship together. If you listen to this whole series of podcasts, then you'll know that we recorded back in March of 2022, uh, but we only went public with the podcasts in October of 2022. And so things have happened. And one thing that you will no doubt have picked up if you listen to episode two is that Kate's group are no longer waiting for their refugees. They arrived in June and they are doing well and the group is doing well. Please note that this series of podcasts, which we're calling How Do I Sponsor a Refugee? Because that's what they're about, are quite specific in the detail to how we do things at the Mennonite Central Committee office in Saskatoon. Not every sponsorship agreement holder will do things in exactly the same way. We're all subject to the same government rules. We're all subject to the same expectations, but we handle things slightly differently from one group to another. And so if you're looking to sponsor through somebody else, or you, if you have experienced sponsorship through somebody else, or even through us in the past, you will notice some differences. We would like to invite people who haven't thus far been involved in sponsoring refugees to consider it. And if you would like to get involved, and especially especially if you want to sponsor someone who's not related to you, if you want to welcome the stranger, that is, feel free to contact me. This is Mark Bigland Pritchard at migration at mccsk.ca. That's migration at mccsk.ca. And I say, you know, especially people who aren't related to somebody that they want to bring, because we have a number of people that we would be very happy to be able to bring who are in serious problems, but who don't have the people here to support them at this point to form a strong enough group or to provide the money. And so if you can help in either or both of those ways, then obviously we will be very, very glad to hear from you. Meanwhile, thanks for listening to How Do I Sponsor a Refugee? How Do I Sponsor a Refugee is a podcast of Mennonite Central Committee, Saskatchewan. All speakers are responsible for their own comments. 
We are grateful to Erin Brophy and Fletcher Forehand for providing the music.